This is Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Each episode, we explore the human dimensions of climate change with some of the leading experts at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm Jake Fox. I'm Cameron Nicewander. We're your hosts for the show. It is our goal to help you, our listeners, learn about the health consequences of global warming. And ask you to get involved in personal and political efforts to slow climate change. As always, please check out our webpage, cuconsortium.org slash podcast, for episode summaries, show notes, and our comment box. Without further ado, on to the show. And this long line of cars is all because of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attention Humans. Today, we have the opportunity to sit down with Dr. James Crooks. Dr. Crooks is an environmental epidemiologist, statistician, and associate professor at National Jewish Health, a respiratory research hospital in Denver, as well as a clinical assistant at the Colorado School of Public Health. Dr. Crooks earned his Ph.D. and Master of Science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2005 and 2006 and completed a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at Duke University. Afterwards, he fulfilled a seven-year stint as a scientist at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Office of Research and Development. He then moved to National Jewish Health in 2015 and there has built a research program in air pollution health effects with a focus on climate-sensitive extreme events like wildfires and dust storms. He has authored 30 peer-reviewed publications, advised the U.S. Embassy in Sarajevo on air quality in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and served on two EPA air pollution science review panels. He currently co-directs the Program on Environmental Epigenetics at National Jewish Health and leads the Respiratory Disease and Air Pollution Working Group of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. Most importantly, he is a husband and father of two middle-aged boys. So, Dr. Crooks, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Did we miss anything important in your biography? No, I think uh, I think you hit all the hot spots. Sounds good. So for our first question, Dr. Crooks, we'd like to ask you, how much trouble are we in? That is a good question. Uh, I think we're in a fair amount of trouble, um, to be honest. Uh, if you look at what carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere have done in the past and sort of where we expect them to go, big changes are in store for us. Um, it took about... 80 parts per million additional CO2 to get us out of the last ice age. So we went from having half-mile-thick ice sheets in as far south as New York City and Cincinnati to not having ice sheets anywhere near those places. All it took was 80 parts per million CO2 increase. And uh, since then, we've added another 130 parts per million in the last 200 years. And then we are looking to add another maybe 500 parts per million in the next by the end of this century, give or take, if we do not slow down our emissions. Um, you can imagine that that would make a pretty darn big impact. Yeah, absolutely. That I think those numbers really help to put this in perspective in terms of how the increase that we're dealing with in the Industrial Revolution and since then relates to kind of the natural progression uh, in, in geologic time. And it takes a while for the er, the climate system to respond to that additional CO2. So you know, by the end of the century, we would probably get, if we don't slow down emissions, uh, 10 degrees Fahrenheit warmer temperatures than we have now, um, and then probably another 10 degrees in the century after that. So big chunks, big chunks of the Earth that we live on now would become probably uninhabitable by people um, in a century or two if we keep things up the way we're going now. What implications does that have for air quality? Well, so for air quality, um, there are a couple of implications. 
there are some air pollutants, I'm thinking specifically of ozone, which is a component of smog. Um, Ground-level ozone is a respiratory irritant, and so it can make, make you have asthma attacks. If you have asthma, it can exacerbate COPD. It can make your chest feel tight. Um, ozone forms in heat and sunlight. And so as long as the um, chemicals that it's made out of are present, it will be formed very fast when it's hotter. And so as temperatures go up, we are assuming all else stays equal, um, you would tend to see more high ozone days. So that's a problem in and of itself. Really, um, really quick, can you distinguish between this ground level ozone and this stratospheric ozone that tends to get, people always talk about burning a hole in the ozone layer? What's right. The, what's the difference between those two? That's a good question. Um, so it, there's no difference between the two except where it is. So chemically it's the same. It's just three oxygen atoms bound together. Um, High in the atmosphere, though, it does something very good for us because high in the atmosphere, it protects us from ultraviolet light. And so there was a big concern in the 80s and 90s that um, some of the refrigerants we were using in, you know, your refrigerator in your home um, would release chemicals that would break down the ozone at high altitude and cause a hole in the ozone layer. And so people who are old enough remember worrying about the ozone hole. Um, the world came together and signed a treaty called the Montreal Protocol to um, phase out those refrigerants. And so the ozone hole has not completely recovered, but it's, um, it's not a growing threat the way that was in the 90s. Now, that's high altitude ozone. Ground level ozone does not protect us from UV because there's not that much UV that gets to the ground level. Um, it's all blocked by the high altitude ozone. So at ground level, it's really the effects on your lungs that are important to us, and the effects on the lungs are pretty impressive. Like they, um, your lungs react very strongly to ozone. So anyone who's been outside on a hot, muggy day um, and felt their chest tight, that probably has something to do with ozone. And if you are sensitive because you have asthma or COPD or you have some other chronic lung disease, um, you are at risk of having that lung disease exacerbated by the high ozone. So what kind of things on the ground level contribute to the formation of ozone outside of heat? Well, so beyond sort of heat and sunlight, the, uh, the two things you need to have to, to make ground level ozone are a class of gas called nitrogen oxides. That is the gases that come out the tailpipe of your car. And the other thing you need are another class of gases called volatile organic compounds. Um, which are a really broad class, and there are many different sources of volatile organics. Um, where we live here in Denver, one of the major sources is um, leaks from natural gas wells. Um, so they release volatile organics. But you also get it um, just any time you smell gasoline at a sort of vaporizing off the ground at a gas station, those are volatile organics. But, you know, humans are not the only source of volatile organics. There are natural sources as well. And so there's some amount of ozone that isn't natural background that we really can't go below. Um, but we can, you know, we do have ways of impacting the non-natural sources of those progenitor chemicals. It sounds like there there is some level of background ozone that just comes, exists from the natural world. There is a little bit of ozone that we create as humans in various sources of emission. And all of these are, are bound to get sped up, so to speak, by heat events which we project to get worse with climate change. Exactly, yeah. So as long as those precursor chemicals are in the air, 
from whatever sources, a hotter, sunnier day is going to produce more ozone. So it will take these two classes of gases that are each individually bad for you, and then they together will take a gas that's not bad for you, oxygen, and make it bad for you too. <laughs> so it will take oxygen and make it into ozone. So, Dr. Crooks, for those of us who live in Colorado, uh, particularly on some summer days when it's really dry out, we smell something in the air and we often see a haze uh, drifting over the western skyline. Um, and we know that this is perhaps one of the other consequences of climate change. So can you talk a little bit about wildfire? One of the consequences of warmer temperature is that the air both... Um, evaporates more moisture from the soil and also holds it for longer. And so it can go longer without raining. And so you expect as the temperature to go up for vegetation to get drier. And consequences of drier vegetation is uh, they are more susceptible to wildfires. And we've found that, you know, just in the past 30 years or 35 years that the number of acres burned in the United States due to wildfire has gone up by about a factor of two to three. Um, there's a lot of variation each year, but overall it's probably a factor of two to, two to three increase in number of acres burned per year. Um, some of that's due to land use changes, and some of that's due to um, climate change. It's hard to parse out exactly how much is which. Um, but the wildfire smoke produces uh, ozone precursors. It also um, produces particulates. And so what you're smelling, probably if you smell wildfire smoke, is probably the, the small particles that are in the air. Small particles in the air are, um, when you smell them, you sort of know, okay, this is probably bad for me and I shouldn't breathe this. But actually the respiratory effects are not nearly as important as the cardiovascular effects. And in fact, the, the strongest link that scientists know about between any air pollutant and any health outcome is the link between small particles and heart disease. Can you um, unpack that a little bit? So that's kind of counterintuitive to some people, or you breathe things in. Why would that affect your heart? Yeah, I know. It's totally counterintuitive. And, you know, most people who are cardiac patients have never thought about it, probably. Um, so what happens is uh, the smaller particles can get deep into your lung and either sort of lodge in the lung where they get attacked by your immune system, sort of in at that point, and then those immune cells can spill over into the rest of your body and um, induce systemic inflammation. And systemic inflammation is um, something that your body does that, that encourages heart disease and encourages heart attacks in people who have heart disease. Um, sometimes the really small particles don't just get stuck in your lung, though. They can actually pass through the lining of your lung into the bloodstream itself. And so they can directly cause an inflammatory response wherever they end up landing in your body. And there are evidence from... Um, this is kind of gruesome, but human cadavers, where people have dissected human cadavers and found tiny particles in brains of human cadavers that are surrounded by little nodules of immune cells. Um, they've also found tiny particles that are being attacked by the immune system in placentas. So it's not, so there's evidence linking particles, not just with heart disease, but pretty much anything else that involves inflammation. So... Yes, heart disease is the most important health impact, but there are others too, like neurological impacts because you can find them in the brain. There are impacts on birth weight because you find them in placentas. Um, so the, the impacts of particles are, are sort of hard to overstate because there are so many. Pretty much any disease process that your body has 
that involves inflammation is going to be exacerbated by breathing small particles. So <clears throat> these particles that we breathe in um, are not only concerned for, for our lung and respiratory health systems, but they can really spread all over the body and, and create kind of this massive inflammation based on where they land, including placenta um, and triggering probably preterm birth and, and low birth weights in pregnant mothers. Yes, and while there is no direct evidence of those tiny particles getting into babies during gestation, if they can get in the placenta, it's not crazy to think that they could get directly to the baby too. So uh, there's no evidence saying that there is that link yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we find it in the next 10 years. Could you chat maybe a little more about um, sources of these particles? So we talked about wildfire. Um, where else do these come from? Well, so the sources that humans directly cause would be things like burning fuel because um, particles can be formed um, through the combustion process. So some, some tailpipe emissions are particles. They're not a ton. Um, but you can also, like, the friction between your tire and the road can produce particles that get into the air. Um, but other major sources are, like, power plants, uh, fossil fuel power plants. Um, if they don't have emissions control technology on them are major sources of, of airborne particles that are pretty small. How does, I was, how does climate change... Um, factor into increasing this particulate matter? Well, so climate change, you know, with, with the extra heat and the dryness, um, you can get more wildfires. You can also get more dust storms. Um, it's not clear how many more we're going to get yet, but it does seem very likely that if you have drier areas um, that are undergoing drought and so the ved cover, vegetation cover dies, um, it's easier to kick the dust up when there's dryness and, and soil moisture is low and vegetation is low. Um, and dusts are another source of fine and also large particles that are known to have um, pretty severe health impacts. Yeah, so we, we grew up here in Colorado and we've heard that word drought thrown around a lot all through our childhood. We seem to be doing okay. I mean, still turn on the faucet, water comes out, people still water their lawns. I mean, is this gonna get worse in the future? That is a tough thing to say for Colorado um, because we are pretty dependent on uh, runoff from snowmelt for water for most of the year. And as long as that snow continues to come down, either as snow or as rain, we should be able to capture it. Um, there are other regions of the country where they're not that lucky. They don't have a lot of snowmelt to, to draw upon and they have to um, pump groundwater. And so the issue is that groundwater is a finite resource and eventually they will run out and particularly if they undergo drought they're probably going to have to pump it faster and run out sooner. What, what are those regions of the country? Um, well the region that I know most about is the, uh, the Great Plains region particularly um, the region that sits on top of the High Plains aquifer which goes from Nebraska down to West Texas and includes parts of eastern Colorado as well. That aquifer has already dropped in some places by, you know, hundreds of feet over the past century, most of that drop being in the past 30 years. And um, we know that the Great Plains are susceptible to major droughts because we saw severe drought in the 30s and we, the Dust Bowl, and we could see drought again. The predictions are at least for the Southern Great Plains to have more drought. So when you have more drought at the surface, it means you have to pump more groundwater to keep farming going the more groundwater you pump, 
you know, the faster you use up that groundwater because it doesn't get replenished very easily and eventually you run out. And uh, when you run out, then farming becomes a marginal activity in those areas. And if farming becomes marginal, then um, there may be less surface vegetation and it's easier to kick up dust. You talked about some of the health effects of the small particulate matter that comes from wildfire. Does the particulate matter in, a, say, a dust storm, is that dis a distinct entity or is there a lot of overlap there? They're both pretty complicated mixtures of different types of particles and sometimes in wildfire case, gases as well. Um, so it's sort of hard to do the, uh, a direct comparison. Um, and in fact, sometimes wildfires are so strong that it, they set up these convective currents in the air that suck up dust around them. And so you get wildfire smoke and dust mixed together. But the, you know, when scientists talk about the health effects of particles, usually it's not the chemistry of the particle that we focus on that much. It's really the size, because the size determines how far it can get into your lung. The further it can get into your lung, usually the worse the health effect's going to be. Smaller particles can get further in than bigger ones. Yeah. So I want to say we talk about PM 2.5 and PM 10. You know, what, what are those and why do we use those? Well, so those, those are size categories. So PM 10 is anything less than 10 microns across, um, or 2.5 is less than 2.5 microns. Um, so a micron is 1,000th of a millimeter. So these are pretty tiny particles. Usually, like PM 10... I mean, I don't have any hair, but you guys have hair, and you could probably fit maybe five of those PM10 particles across a human hair, and, um, you know, 20 of them, 20 PM2.5 particles across a human hair. So they're very small. It's hard to see each one individually um, as it's, you know, these are much smaller than the dust motes you see sort of in the sunlight in your house. Who is the most at risk from poor air quality? Well, so people who are already sick are certainly at risk. So people with respiratory diseases or people with pre-existing heart disease are going to be at risk for, you know, spikes in air pollution. You know, people with COPD or asthma can have, have to go to the hospital or have asthma attacks. People with heart disease could have strokes or heart attacks. So people with chronic diseases like that are going to, um, you know, have some real trouble. The other groups that are probably at most at risk are, are folks who are vulnerable for other reasons not just health, but age or socioeconomic status. So young people have developing lungs. They're pretty vulnerable to air pollution. Old people often have, even if they don't have chronic illness, they're still medically fragile compared to you know, people in the prime of life. And so it's, it's easy to upset that, uh, their, their equilibrium. Does, does location matter at all? I can imagine some people would be more likely to be exposed to particulate matter in the air? Yeah, certainly like for human-made particulate matter, if you live near a highway or you live near a power plant or a big industrial site, you're going to be exposed to a lot more than someone who lives far away. Um, for wildfires, you know, there's probably more wildfire smoke in the western U.S. than in the eastern U.S., um, so people in the west will probably be exposed to more. Dust is more of a, a local phenomenon. There's not a ton of like, you don't see dust storms traveling thousands of miles. Used to, during the Dust Bowl, that did happen a few times. But um, long-range transport of the particles is not common with dust. Um, and so if, you know, unless you live in Phoenix or Southern, Cal Southern California or someplace that already has dust, you're probably not at huge risk.
Hey everyone, with that, we're going to close out this episode of Attention Humans. We'll continue next time with Dr. Crooks, where we'll talk a little bit about indoor air quality, how climate change can affect the allergy season, and hear his thoughts on what we can do to get engaged. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in then. You've been listening to Attention Humans, the podcast of the University of Colorado Consortium for Climate Change and Health. We unpack the human health dimensions of climate change and emphasize the urgent need for all of us to get involved. We want to thank Dr. Rosemary Rochford and Dr. C.C. Sorensen for their mentorship on this project. Ellen McFarlane and Matt Cook for technical support. Cake for the jam and theme music. Our awesome guests for sharing their expertise. And you, our listeners, for paying attention. See you next time.